Um, we really are in a difficult section of the book of Revelation. Uh, some people find it difficult because it is a it is a section in chapters eight and nine where you see where you see judgment falling on the earth. Um, and some people don't have any room in their view of God, uh, the character of God for judgment. Uh, maybe that's what needs to be adjusted a little bit. You need to have that balanced view of God. It's interesting to me, for those of you that are perhaps Methodists in the room, that when our movement got started in the uh, 1740s, when our movement got started, we really were a renewal movement among the Church of England. And we, we helped renew the church, or tried to renew the church, by our small group meetings. Uh, we had Methodist class meetings that were formed into Methodist societies. You may know that in our earliest days, there was only one question asked of you uh, to see whether or not you were appropriate to join a Methodist class meeting. And I, I mentioned this question to you to kind of show you how much some things have changed uh, in the last couple hundred years. But the question is still there in our general rules, by the way. Um, the question that was asked of people to see whether or not they were appropriate members for a Methodist class was, do you desire to flee from the wrath to come and be saved from your sin? Um, it's interesting. That was the question uh, that you had to answer to become a member of a Methodist society in the early days of our movement. I think it's interesting because today I don't think people want to talk about wrath at all. And they end up with a sort of unbalanced view of God that not is just all-loving, because I think to say God's all-loving includes a wrathful side. You hurt my children who I love, you'll see my wrath. Um, there's a wrathful side. There's a hard side. Uh, to love. So I, I think God is all loving, but there's that hard side to love. But what I think we do oftentimes in contemporary culture in, in the United States, we use the word loving in a, in a very modern sense that doesn't mean the full orbed perspective of love that we find in the Bible, but we just sort of mean um, an attitude that lets anything go, lets everybody off the hook, that demands nothing of anyone, that expects nothing of anyone. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what I see common in our culture that I, I would even call it love. Uh, the, the biblical concept of love has both a hard and a soft side. Uh, Jesus cast the money changers out of the temple. Uh, you never see Jesus being wrathful for his own sake. But when the money changers in the temple were offending God, offending the Father of Jesus, then Jesus became wrathful. He never got angry to protect himself, but he did get angry. Uh, to protect the image of God, to protect what his father wanted. So uh, I think most of us, if you think about it, psychologically understand that there's both a hard and a soft side to love if you have a holistic view of love. That's why I'm, in our culture sometimes it's called tough love. I don't know that I even like the phrase tough love. I know what it means and it's helpful. But again, I think all love, if it's really love, has to be tough. Um, you know, there's some parts of love that makes it easy. Uh, there's some parts of love that makes life tough. All of you that have raised children, you understand that. 
Uh, there's days you have you have to give them what they need, not what they want. Uh, so love is always sort of uh, tough. So. Yeah, in the Bible, not just in the book of Revelation, not just in the Old Testament, but throughout the scriptures, you see both the soft, welcoming side of God, and you see the other side of that coin. Uh, you see a God that um, um, they can have a hard side to them. So in this section, in, in Re- we've seen it some already in chapter 6. Then we had that beautiful interlude in chapter 7 where he went to heaven and saw the people in heaven. Uh, but here back in chapter chapters 8 and 9, you see another, uh, another collection of judgment falling on the earth. Uh, I think it's a recapitulation. I think it's a retelling. Uh, I mentioned to you sort of in the introductory section about the book of Revelation. I think um, it's not, Revelation is not written in a linear sense. Uh, you, you have uh, recapitulations. You have pictures of judgment falling. And I think you have three major cycles of the pictures of judgment falling. And I do think it's pretty obvious in the text. Uh, each time it's presented... They're presented in, with increasing intensity, um, but you have at least three major sections of, uh, of seeing judgment fall on the earth. Now, I'm also quick to say this, not that I need to protect the image of God, but I'm quick to say this. You know, when you look at texts like this, you need to see not that, that, that God is just, you know, um, having a really, really bad day. But you see, need to see God as preeminently just. I mean, he will set everything right one day. Uh, everything will be right-wised one day uh, in human history uh, and, and in creation. So, um, you know, you, you have to realize somehow, or at least accept somehow, that what God is doing is as a result of justice, not just he's having a bad day. Um, I think also when you look at this text... Uh, you need to, again, it's, as I keep reminding us in the book of Revelation, these are symbols. These are symbols that are pointing to the reality. Don't confuse the symbol with the reality. Um, you know, God will judge the wickedness of the world. Uh, these are symbols pointing toward God's judgment of the wickedness of the world. But anytime we use human language, there's limit, limitations. I think you also need to think about the fact that when you look at God's bringing judgment uh, on human wickedness, that a lot of the judgment, I don't think I've used this phrase, but I've alluded to this, much of the judgment that you see um, God um, meeting out on planet Earth is what some biblical scholars call, um, they, they call it sort of indirect divine judgment. Sometimes the, the most harsh thing God could ever do to us is let us have our way. Let us destroy creation. Yeah, we'll pay a price for that. Let us just become a people, a, a people on planet Earth, uh, greatly in love with, with oppression and military power and conquering people. We'll pay a price for that. So oftentimes the most harsh thing God can ever do is let us have what we seem to want so badly. So some of the judgments that are that you'll see falling on planet Earth, God doesn't even have to directly do it. He just has to allow us to get what we want. He has to allow us to get the end result of what we seem to be trying to create. Because I don't really feel the need to project to protect God's image. 
But you need to think about things like that as you're looking at texts like Revelation 8, Revelation 9. Um, and again, make sure you balance your view. I mean, if we only had this part of the book of Revelation as our sacred scripture, I don't, I'm not sure what kind of God we'd paint a picture of. But we have the whole Revelation, and throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there is uh, both the hard and the soft side to God. Some people think Old Testament's hard side, New Testament's soft side. That's a terrible stereotype. You know, they'll say sometimes, New Testament God's love, Old Testament God's wrath. Terrible stereotype that's created by people who haven't read the book. Uh, besides that, it's very anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish too. Uh, there's throughout the scriptures. Um, uh, there's both the hard side and the soft side to God. So, yeah, when you have somebody really very dangerously say the Old Testament's a God of wrath and New Testament's a God of uh, love, just email them a copy of the book of Revelation and make sure they know it's in the New Testament. Now, I did do a funeral 35 years ago, and I did it with another pastor at Montlake Avenue Methodist Church, and I told the pastor I'd do New Testament and make some remarks. I asked him to do the Old Testament and make some remarks. He stood right up there in my pulpit, and he said, the Old Testament reading days from the book of Revelation. He just wanted to read Revelation 21, I think. Surely he knew better. Anyway, I think most of the people know Revelations in the New Testament. So, uh, you know, and, and, and the hard side of God that you see in the book of Revelation is, um, you know, a rival anything you see in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. So you need to keep your view balanced of God. So what I want to do, look at chapter 8. Chapter 8 short. Um, and really chapter 8 and 9 go together, but we'll do chapter 9 next week. I'm gonna, I want to read through chapter 8 because I want you to get the big picture, then I'll go back through it. 8-1. Let me make sure you remember where we're at. You had the seven seals. Six of the seals have been open, and you saw what happened when they were open. Then you had that interlude, chapter 7, where you go to heaven and you see there's marvelous visions in heaven. So what you have, and this is, what, this is part of the way the book of Revelation is organized. At the beginning of chapter 8, the seventh seal will be open. And what happens when the seventh seal is open is then you have the seven trumpets. So um, that's, how the, that's how the seals and the trumpets and the bowls stay connected to each other. So look at verse 1 of chapter 8. I'll read through and go back. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers, with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquake. Verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown on upon the earth. They, these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. 
The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. That ends chapter 8. Unfortunately, there's a big 9 right there that tells you you're entering another chapter, but the, it really goes on. Uh, here in chapter 8, you've got the scene in heaven, and then you've got, you've got four trumpets being blown. Uh, chapter 9, you get to the three remaining trumpets. So, let's go back to the beginning. Some good stuff here. When the Lamb, again, that's your preeminent vision of Jesus in the text. And I think that's one of the ways the book of Revelation keeps you mindful, perhaps, of the soft side of God. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Um, a lot of ink has been spilled over this silence in heaven for a half an hour. Um, first, let me say, um, well, if you look at the Hebrew Bible, there's several places where silence precedes judgment. Silence sort of illuminates the awesomeness of God. Some of you, if you know your old Cokesbury hymnal, which was printed in 1939, but it's still in print, I think, even to this day, the old Cokesbury hymnal, there used to be a little, um, uh, little sung phrase that's in the front of that hymnal that a lot of churches used at the beginning of its worship service is a quotation from Habakkuk, I think it's chapter 2, verse 20, let all the earth keep silence. The Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence. Uh, that's one of the places where you see silence preceding judgment in Habakkuk. You'll see the same thing happen in Zechariah, you'll see the same thing happen in Zephaniah in the Hebrew Bible. Silence just, uh, you know, is there for effect. You know, I know sometimes when you're preaching, if I just quit talking for a second, I wake some folks up. They see what I'm doing. They pay attention. Sometimes a, that's why pause can be pregnant. Um, so that's why this is a pregnant pause here uh, in the text. Uh, because remember what's going on thus far. Ceaseless praise in heaven. That's the way heaven's picture in the book of Revelation. Ceaseless praise in heaven. Well, all of a sudden, the ceaseless praise stops. And then for 30 minutes, there's silence. Now, again, probably 30 minutes doesn't mean one minute more than 29 and one minute less than 31. It just means a short, predetermined, set period. There's silence. And I think it's there for dramatic effect. I think it's there because God's about to bring judgment. I think it's there to get your attention. Um, some people will say, and I'll accept this too, because while we're getting ready to read, it may be the silence in heaven so that the prayers of the saints can be heard in heaven. 
Um, don't know that I like that a lot because our prayers are always heard in heaven in the midst of constant ceaseless praise in heaven. I think it's more for dramatic, more for dramatic effect. And again, always kind of keep your New Testament tied to the Old Testament. Uh, I think it agrees with Habakkuk and Zephaniah and Zechariah. Verse 2. So you know something's big about to happen because of the silence. Verse 2, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. Uh, trumpets, of course, in the Hebrew Bible are used to um, call people to battle, are used to call people to worship, are used to warn. All of those uses of trumpets are in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, I think maybe all of those, in a sense, are behind this. Trumpets, of course, are calling people to battle, but particularly here they're calling forth judgment. Uh, notice these seven angels. These are the seven angels who, they're, they're defined, who stand before God. Uh, in, in Hebrew scripture, not in the Bible, a little bit in the Bible, but uh, again, Jews nor Christians only wrote what's in your Bible and all of a sudden were struck dumb. I mean, we kept writing. We have a lot of literature out there from the first two, three hundred years of Christianity. Uh, so um, sometimes that literature, though we don't elevate it to the standing of what we consider uh, canonical scripture, that, 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 that scripture, that other literature can, can illuminate a lot for us. Uh, when you look at First Enoch, which was written maybe 200, parts of it written as much as 250 years before the time of Jesus. In First Enoch, uh, the angels of the angels of the presence are referenced in the book of Tobit, which is in the apocryphal, the Deuterocanonicals, and those were highly used in the early church, and that's why uh, they're a second canon. That's what Deuterocanonical means, second canon, uh, or, or apocryphal books. In Tobit, um, there's reference to them. So particularly from First Enoch, we're given the seven names of the seven angels who in the New Testament are called archangels. We think they're probably one and the same. The seven angels of God's presence, the archangels that are referenced in the New Testament. Um, there are two mentioned by name in the Bible. Who are they? Michael and Gabriel. Those are two mentioned by name. If you add Tobit as some sort of scripture, and like I say, even the Roman Catholic Church and Greek Orthodox Church, they're called Deuterocanonicals, which means second canon, you know, the second tier list. And that's why a lot of the Protestants, we will, if our Bibles hold, if our Bibles have the Apocrypha, they're in the center. Um, if it's Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox um, uh, printing, they'll 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 scatter what they call Deuterocanonicals throughout the Old Testament. Uh, but they basically were Jewish books written in Greek that the early Christian church uh, esteemed. Most of them are written between the what we call Old New Testament. So if you do Tobit, has a little bit of status, not the status of the uh, books that we call scriptural, but has a little status. And there's there's a third one named, so maybe three names. That's why if you're talking to your Catholic friends, they'll say three are named in scripture, but they're, they're referencing the book of Tobit. Uh, Raphael is the one that's named. First Enoch will give you all seven names. That's why I've written on my board up here, uh, just in case you're curious. You may have a Jeopardy question one of these days. But those are the seven names that are referenced. Raphael, Uriel, Rachiel, Michiel, Sariel, Gabriel, and uh, Remiel. Those are the se they're, they're named in First Enoch. Uh, what do you see? Um, 
that all those names have in common? Yeah. El, which you, some of you probably know that is the Hebrew word for what? God. I heard it. God. Yeah, El is the Hebrew, one of the Hebrew words for God. So you see all those names have a reference to God, El, there. Uh, so we, we, these seven archangels got a lot of press in the early church. And that's why most of us are assuming, again, Hebrew literature is behind all of Christian literature. So here are these seven angels of the presence. They're standing before God. They're given the seven trumpets probably to warn. Verse 3, go back to the text of Revelation. And another angel came and stood at the altar. This is the eighth angel at this point. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Um, again, throughout the book of Revelation, heavenly worship looks very much like earthly worship in the temple when it was standing. Uh, and see so how because in the earthly earthly temple in Jerusalem you had a golden altar they had a fire before the golden altar they had incense so again Judaism is Christianity is a different way of being Jewish um, Judaism is is the basis of, of our New Testament so we see this picture of heaven and it looks a little bit like it looks a great deal like uh, Jewish worship and you keep having references to the temple Jewish worship throughout so you've got this golden altar you've got the incense notice the image here uh, it says that the incense is mixed with the prayers of the people which is why in the historic church incense uh, it symbolizes the prayers of God's people rising to heaven Either they are the prayers of God's people, or I think the text here says uh, the incense rises with the prayers of God's people. But the incense symbolizes the rising of God's prayers to the people. That's why um, if you're in a Roman Catholic church, or sort of a high Anglican church, um, they will use incense occasionally. I was talking to George, you know, he's Episcopalian. He's my resident Episcopalian. You know, they use incense, you say, about 10 times a year probably at St. Mary's. Uh, when I go back to the monastery once a month, they, they use incense about every day. Uh, particularly if I'm in the choir loft at the monastery, that incense can be interesting. Um, I mean, it's, it's very pungent, uh, what you have in the Roman Catholic and, and, and the Anglican tradition. But that's where the symbolism comes from. It just symbolizes the rising of, of the prayers of the saints to heaven. So you see there, up to verse 5 through verse 4, you see the prayers rising to God. This is some really important theology here that I hope you pick up on. Look at verse 5 then. The angel took the censer. The censer, and you still see it in a Roman Catholic or an Anglican church, the censer is sort of the metallic bowl or fire pan that has hot charcoals in it that you sprinkle the incense on. That's what makes the incense. Um, they'll use that to, to sense the altar, sense the scriptures, and things like that. So, But notice what happens. After the prayers rise... Then the angel took the censer, this number eight angel, took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar. It's a fire pan, charcoal. Filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So there's a couple things you need to notice here. The judgment that is coming is coming in answer to the prayers of God's people. Which you actually heard those prayers in chapter 7, Right? The souls under the altar saying, how long, O God, is wickedness going to be allowed to prevail? So you see the judgment coming 
as a result of the prayers of God's people. Some of you have heard me say this before, and I'll be deficient if you don't hear me say it many more times. A basic core Christian and Jewish conviction is that our prayers help create history. A basic Christian and Jewish conviction is that God does much, maybe most, of God's work on planet Earth in cooperation with our prayers. John Wesley actually said at one point, I think he was a little extreme, John Wesley said at one point, God does nothing except an answer to prayer. I don't know about the nothing. I tend to avoid statements that say never or nothing. Uh, God's free to do what God wants to do. But you have to understand that God has created a universe with laws. You know about the law of gravity, right? God has created a universe with laws. One of those laws, one of those spiritual laws, is that God so loves the human race that God, much of what God will do, God will do in conjunction, in cooperation, through the prayers of God's people. We've known that for 2,000 years. That's why, you know, we're a little obsessive about prayer in the Jewish and Christian community. I think if you understood this, you'd be more obsessive about prayer. There are lots of things that will not happen unless we pray. And our prayers help create history. Um, and that doesn't run counter to a view of the sovereignty of God. Some people think, you know, whatever will be, will be. That's theology according to Doris Day, not the Bible. They just think whatever will be, will be. And they think that to say something like I just said somehow runs counter to the sovereignty of God. It is the sovereign God who created the laws of the universe, whether they're natural laws or spiritual laws, it's the God of the universe who created this. And we have said for 2,000 years, I didn't make this up last night, we have said for 2,000 years the history of the human race is built through the prayers of God's people. There are things that will happen only if we pray. There are things I'll give my children only if they ask me to give them. Um, it, it, there's, there's, we could talk prayer at another time, but there's reasons for what I just said. It helps us grow in our dependency of God, our admiration of God, our worship of God. God so loves us that he's co- using us, he's cooperating with our prayers, but that's a spiritual law. God works through the prayers of God's people. Our prayers are helping to create history. So if we, if the Christian community, I don't have to say this in Africa, just have to say it in the United States. If the Christian community really believed this, we'd pray more. But I think we think that our prayers don't affect much. For a lot of the contemporary American Christians, prayer is just a form of self-therapy. You know, and I'm all, you know, therapy is a wonderful thing. You know, that's why it's, it's right to say prayer changes the person who prays, but don't stop there. Prayer changes the person who prays, and prayer changes circumstances and writes history. Uh, That's a biblical precedent. And you see it here. I mean, you know, the saints' prayers ascend, judgment then comes. That's how God chose to do it. So the angel takes the fire, throws it on the earth. And again, talking about the harsh and soft sides of God, you know, a lot of people just have refused to hear Jesus when Jesus says things, like in chapter 12 of Luke, I have come to bring fire upon the earth. I have come to bring a sword. 
because of me, families will be torn apart. Jesus said that. That doesn't fit the image that we like of Jesus meek and mild, but Jesus said that. Uh, you, I'm just referencing Luke 12 for homework, but there's, you'll find it being repeated in Mark. You'll be at your, you have it repeated in Matthew. Uh, then if you go to John, just look at the way John talks about some talks to some of the religious leaders sometime in John's gospel. When he looks at them and says, you are of your father, the devil. Yeah, you see that harsh side to Jesus throughout the gospels. So make sure you don't just ignore that piece. So here you see fire being thrown on the earth, and you see these judgments. Of course, as a person with Jewish roots, when you see peals of thunder, rumblings, and flashes of lightning and earthquake, you just think Mount Sinai. God's doing something. Just like he did with the giving of the Ten Commandments. God's doing something. Okay, we can do the rest of the chapter fairly quickly. Here comes the first four judgments. Um... Notice a couple things about the judgments. Here, the judgments fall on planet Earth. All four of these judgments deal with creation, natural disasters, basically. Natural disasters that have impact on humans, but natural disasters. So uh, you see that happening in all these these four trumpet blasts. Um, you see also that you have the word third repeated a few times. You may remember early in the seals, like chapter 6, when the seals were being opened, it was a fourth of creation being harmed. Here's a third of creation being harmed. That's what I mean when I say you see the same thing sort of represented throughout the book of Revelation, at least three majorly. Um, they, They increase in intensity. It's a, it's a third at this point. So the judgments being depicted here are shown to be even more dramatic as a third. Uh, you also, being people with Jewish roots, um, not only have you done felt Sinai, this would feel a lot like the plagues of Egypt. Uh, when um, the plagues of Egypt fell on the Egyptians, the Israelites were there in their midst. But the Israelites were protected from the plagues, basically. Most of them were protected from the plagues. And the plagues fell on Egypt. Keep in mind, why did they fall? They fall, They fell on Egypt for two, real, two, two prevailing reasons. One, as a, as a judgment against idolatry in Egypt. And as a judgment, it's, it's almost the same thing, as a judgment or as a display against the powerlessness of all the other gods, little g, gods of Egypt. So God's judgment tends to fall for those two reasons, as a judgment against idolatry. Uh, Idolatry is a big issue. We need to be careful of the idols that we make. Idolatry is a big issue in Scripture. So you see these these disasters. Verses 8 through 8 and 9, by the way, that looks an awful lot um, like um, what would have been written about in 79 and 80 A.D., with the eruption of Mount Vesuvius and the destruction of Pompeii and Herculaneum in Italy. Now that, you remember that piece of history? Uh, a lot of what's being presented in chapter, verses 8 and 9 uh, was Pliny the Younger, when he wrote about the eruption of, of uh, Mount Vesuvius, talked about stuff like this. Ships in the harbor being destroyed, people running to get away from the lava flow. They, they end up drowning themselves, and that's why in Pompeii, it's an amazing place. I've been there a couple times. Uh, I mean, you, the, the lava just fell on that city, and you can see the, the molds of 
people that were trapped in the lava. So some of that looks an awful lot like verses 8 and 9 as, the, as, as Revelation is painting these pictures of judgment. Look at verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star. One modern translation calls it the megastar. Uh, the megastar fell from heaven blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the waters and on the springs of water. Uh, the name of the star is Wormwood. Those of you that hang out with C.S. Lewis and me know that word, right? In the screw tape letters, screw tape is writing those letters. Screw tape is the senior devil writing those letters to his junior devil, whose name is what? Wormwood. Um, so, yeah, C.S. Lewis even gets in the book of Revelation, or the book of Revelation gets in C.S. Lewis. So Wormwood um, is the name of this star that goes down, and notice what happens when this star hits. A third of the waters become Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. You probably don't know a lot about Wormwood. Uh, it was a plant in the ancient world that, that would make things bitter. They used it medicinally because uh, they thought if they would ingest it, it would take care of intestinal problems. I don't know if it did or not, but they thought that. So wormwood was well known. But the background of this, and here's some more homework, Jeremiah 23. In Jeremiah 23, there's an oracle from Jeremiah. And the whole book of Jeremiah's oracles, basically, where he's judging the people of Jerusalem before judgment comes in the form of the Babylonians. Uh, but in Jeremiah 23, he's talking about how they will be made to consume wormwood. And that's, that's a symbol of the judgment that they'll receive. Uh, and that, that, of course, that wormwood shows up in the person of the Babylonians who destroy Jerusalem and um, take away many of the people into uh, captivity. So you've got wormwood falling. This is a bitter time. Fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining. Likewise, a third of the night. Let's hear the emphasis on third. Look at verse 13. Um, you've got judgment up to this point, judgment plague-type judgment like you saw in Egypt at this point. Verse 13, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle. Now, some of your translations don't say eagle, right? I don't know how many of you have King James in front of you. But instead of now, instead of eagle, is there another word there? Angel. Angel. Yeah, the Greek can actually go either direction. Um, most... Most um, contemporary translations prefer the manuscripts that say eagle. Now, we're probably offended by this because we like eagles. It's a symbol of our nation. Uh, but eagles in the ancient world had two prevailing ideas surrounding them. One, the eagle was the symbol of the Roman legions. The eagle would be what the, the gold or silver eagles on the standards of the Roman legion. Um, one time they marched into the temple and created a terrible riot, more than one time, created a terrible riot because the Jewish people considered that image of an eagle to be an idolatrous graven image. And it created a, an, a riot when the Roman soldiers marched into the temple. Uh, but eagles uh, have a... Um, uh, connection with Rome. That's why Jesus says when he's talking about the destruction of the temple, he talks about the eagles gathering. Well, he's talking about the Romans gathering around the destruction of the temple. So the eagle means something can be connected to Rome, but in most of the ancient world before the Romans, uh, it was just a, a, a carrion. It was, it was a bird of prey. Some people just say translated vulture. 
and you get the image here. So the vulture is going to show up. Uh, and notice also it says it flew directly overhead. Or it may, your text may say something like it flew directly in, or it flew in midair. The, the word there, in, 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 and I wish I would just leave it alone, the word there in Greek literally is midheaven. This eagle's flying in midheaven. And that's a good place to talk about the way the ancients saw uh, creation. Remember in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is really talking about himself. And he says, I know someone who was called up to the third heaven. Remember Paul talking about that? The ancients saw um, the creation in the form of three heavens. The heaven is what you're breathing right now. The third heaven is the heaven of God. And the midheaven is the heaven way up there, kind of between us and God. Um, so this eagle's flying in the midheaven, because uh, Jews would have understood what that meant. Your translations are assuming you don't, so they're helping you out by saying directly overhead or in the midair or whatever. The eagle's flying, and the, uh, my translation is fairly traditional. It says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, some of your contemporary translations almost make it, and I like this, it makes it more powerful. So one contemporary translation says horror, horror, horror. One says terror, terror, terror. So you can get the, you can get the point. Uh, yeah, we don't use the word woe very much in our culture anymore. Um, but you got this eagle getting re- is flying, you know, announcing that something really bad now, you think something pretty bad's already happened, but something really bad now is coming. Uh, and then you have the blast of the other trumpets and that the three angels are about to blow. In chapter 9 are the blowing of those three trumpets and the judgments that fall. Okay, one concluding word about these judgments. Um, I am fine with you doing several things with these judgments, and it may be appropriate to do all, all of these with these judgments. Again, they are, we know they're symbolic. We know they're symbolic. Um, we know that. Uh, as a matter of fact, you'll also see in chapter 9, when another trumpet blows, that one of the trumpets says, don't harm any of the grass. Well, you just saw some of the grass already get burnt up. So, you know, John and the Spirit at this point is not, not worried about fitting your post-scientific way of thinking. So it is symbolic. So uh, these could be symbolic of some of the disasters that have always been part of our history. Again, I mentioned Vesuvius. Uh, we've seen these things. God sometimes lets us have what our fallen nature and what the fallen nature of creation uh, will bring to us. And again, keep in mind the book of Revelation from beginning to end is saying God is trying to call people to repentance. So all of these examples in human history should be something that calls us to repentance. You will see in chapter 9, in good human nature, they refuse to repent. There's nothing can make them repent. Anyway, all of these things that come into human history should help us get closer to God, should cause us to repent the way we're living or doing or being. Um, so it could be symbolic of the, um, uh, the, the natural disasters throughout human history. It could be, it could be symbolic of, because uh, I think at the end of human history, uh, as the kingdom of God is about to triumph, I think the kingdom of darkness will kick it into overdrive. And we've kind of said throughout history, this is our apocalyptic strand in history, we've said that uh, at the shift of the age, 
and we're going to be talking a lot more about the shift of the age. When the kingdoms of this world fall so that the kingdom of God can prevail, that's the shift of the age. When your prayer is finally answered, thy kingdom come, there's going to be birth pangs. Uh, as the kingdom of God is about to prevail, the kingdom of darkness will kick it into overdrive. So the last days of the last days uh, has been pretty much consensus throughout all the apocalyptic genre of Jewish and Christian writing that the last days of the last days will be a time of great revival and a time of great turmoil, a time of great pain. They will go simultaneously. As Jesus said, the wheat and the tares will grow together. Uh, the kingdom of God will advance. The kingdom of God is advancing. And that, that really wakes up the kingdom of the enemy. If the enemy is leaving you alone right now, you need to meditate on that a while. Um, you should be enough of a threat to the kingdom of the enemy that the kingdom of the enemy, the kingdom of the enemy is, 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 is interfering with your life. Uh, but the kingdom of darkness, kingdom of light, they grow together. And in all the apocalyptic genre, uh, First Enoch and everything else has been written in Revelation. Uh, book of Daniel, it first kind of got in the, in the Jewish mind through the 12th chapter of the book of Daniel. It's at the end of the last of the last days. Uh, there will be great revival. God will be doing great things. And there will also be great turmoil and great, great chaos. This could be symbolic of the final end. I don't know if it's... I, I tend to think it's not symbolic of the final end because we're still just up to a third. Now, with, with the, the bowls being poured out... And that just even implies greater judgment. When the bowls get poured out, um, it, it'd be more than a third. You go from a fourth to a third to a whole lot more. So I don't know that this is really reflecting uh, the, the the final trials and travail. Jesus referred to um, birth pains. That when the shift of the age is nearing, when the kingdom of God is about to come, when this world is newly created. And you get to see a new heaven and new earth come down, Revelation 21. Um, there'll be birth pains. They'll precede that. It's always been that way, the shift of the age. Um, it may be part of that. It may be part of, it may just symbolize all the travail that we experience in life. Um, or maybe all of the above. I always kind of like the answer, all of the above. It may symbolize all of the above. So, four trumpets have blared. You've got four natural disasters or depictions of natural disaster. The last three trumpets are a little different. We will see those next week, and this is a wonderful way to wish you Merry Christmas uh, with, with Revelation 8 and 9. Go in peace. Make sure you meet somebody for